0: Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Acts 16, 1 through 5. Now remember, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through His faithful people. So far in Acts, we've seen the start, the rise, and the spread of the church, but not just geographically, but to all groups of people, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. As a result, Satan has brought great opposition and intense persecution to the church, but even so, God and His truth prevails, working mightily through His faithful and obedient people. The church is now thriving in the midst of trial. Paul and Barnabas went on a very successful missionary journey. The church has just faced uh, false teachings and they stood strong against those false teachings. And now Paul and Silas are on another missionary journey, the second one for Paul. Let's find out what happened, verse 1, Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now here in today's passage, we can note three important facts, the first being this, that Paul and Silas departed on their missionary journey. Remember, they, they began their trip in the previous chapter, and here in verse 1, we find them coming to Derby and then going to Lystra. This is now missionary journey number 2 for Paul. The first one focused on Paul and Barnabas, and this one focuses on Paul and Silas. The plan was to go and strengthen and teach the churches that they had previously started, but Barnabas, if you remember went to Cyprus with Mark. And so Paul chose to go a different route by land that took him north through Syria and then west through Cilicia to Derbe, which was a turning around point of their first missionary journey. So off Paul and Silas went about 250 miles by foot. Last time they approached the small city from the east, but now they approach from the west. See, going north from Antioch of Syria, Paul and Silas would first pass through the Syrian gates, known today as the Belen Pass, which was a pass constructed through the mountains in the southeast region of modern-day Turkey. From these gates, the missionaries likely would have traveled to Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and then they would have traversed through the Cilician gates, which was an engineered pass through the Taurus mountains by way of a very narrow gorge. Now the hiking wasn't easy in any way but these missionaries didn't ask for ease no they're obeying the lord which is often very hard they first came to the little town of derby remember derby acts 14:21 tells us what happened in derby and when they had preached the gospel to that city the city of derby they made many disciples how good is that they preached and souls got saved and that's the goal right souls disciples True followers of the Lord. So the previous ministry in Derby was a great success. They first came back to Derby, and even though verse 1 doesn't say so, they undoubtedly ministered there, strengthened the churches, taught the churches, and saw more souls saved for the glory of God. After that, it says that they went on to Lystra. Remember what happened in Lystra, Acts chapter 14? Lystra was only about 18 miles away from Derby, and Lystra was just a small, little old country town. It was a primitive frontier outpost of the Roman Empire that didn't even have a synagogue in it. It was a Wild West kind of town, and it was a very pagan town. Remember what happened there just a couple of years before? Paul healed the crippled man there, and then the people (coughs) worshipped Paul and Barnabas as gods. Paul and Barnabas pleaded with them, and they finally repented. But then, not long after that, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and they persuaded the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. Remember the result? They stoned Paul. They stoned him. Acts 14, 19. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is... This is truly brutal stuff. Remember the normal place where a person was stoned was about 10 to 12 feet down with rocks at the bottom. The person being stoned would have been bound and he would then be shoved off the precipice from behind so that he fell down face forward onto the rocks below. Sometimes that person would die from the initial fall. But if not, the person would then be turned over onto his back. Another person would then take a large stone and drop it onto the person's chest, onto his heart. If that didn't kill the person, then the congregation would throw large stones at the person until he died. And again, this is truly brutal stuff. And it didn't have to be this way. I mean, it really didn't. Had he let the people worship him as a god, the town would have undoubtedly driven the Jews out of the city. Had Paul softened his message in Antioch or in Iconium... The Jews would have, they wouldn't have hated him so severely, but Paul loved God more than he feared pain. He loved God more than he wanted the applause of men. And he knew that God was worth pleasing and suffering for much more than disappointing and disobeying him and having the cushy and easy life as a result. No. Suffering for God is a joy when God is pleased. Obeying him is a joy. Even when that obedience means being stoned, He's worth it. Paul believed that, do we? Do you believe that? It shows when we battle sin. It shows when we share His truth with the desperately needy souls all around us. It shows when we refuse to be hypocrites. When we love the unlovable with the love of God when we stand boldly for the truth of God, when we stop making excuses for spiritual mediocrity, when we stay in His Word and when we commune much with Him in prayer, and when we live for His glory with our fading lives. What about you? And so, they stoned Paul because he preached the good news of Christ and because he sought to glorify God with his life. Remember what happened? They stoned him and they thought he was dead and then they dragged him out of the city and they left him there because again, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't actually dead. Verse 20, however, when the disciples stood around him, he rose up and he went back into the city. What? (laughs) What? Talk about the persistence. Talk about boldness. Talk about intensely loving God. He went back into the city. Then later on, After going to Derby, he came back to Lystra, and now just a couple of years later, he's back again. This is radically, this is a radically courageous thing to do. Go back to the place where they want you dead. But God makes his people courageous, does he not? Hey, let's go back to the people who hate us. Let's keep going back to them. Who does that? Only those who know that it's what God wants them to do, that it's the best thing to do, that it's the most God-honoring thing to do. See, and we've already seen this in Acts, sometimes God's people walk into pain when walking into pain is the thing that glorifies God the most. We're not here to enjoy life. No, we are here to glorify God, and while glorifying God brings the greatest joy to our lives, sometimes those joys come when we're in the most pain. Even pain that could have been avoided had we not sought to honor God. But he's worth it. He's worth it. Yeah. Um, I give my money to my church, my offering to the to, to church, which means that I have a used car instead of a new car. Uh, I, I refuse to lie at work, which means that I didn't get that promotion at work. Uh, Yeah, I refuse to cheat on my taxes, which means less money for me. Yeah, I I spoke the truth and love to my friend and told them the gospel, and now he's not my friend anymore. Yeah, I refuse to go along with the sinful crowd today, and now they all hate me. Yeah, I honored God today, and now everybody mocks me. (laughs) Yeah, my name is Bishop Ridley, and I preach Christ today, and tomorrow I'm going to be burnt at the stake. 1500s. Yeah, my name is Daniel, and all I did was pray to God, and now I'm in the lion's den that's full of lions. Come on. We're not here to enjoy life. We're here to glorify God. We live for the next life. We sometimes choose suffering over ease when suffering honors Christ and our hearts are set on Christ and on what pleases Christ. And pleasing Christ often results in pain, trial, and suffering here. But He's worth it. He's worth it all. And His pleasure and glory makes us courageous because we know that He's always with us and Hey, for us to die is gain. So they went back to Lystra, Paul's third time there and Silas's first time. you picture them? Paul, ha, look over there, Silas, that's where they stoned me. And Silas, come over here, this is where they dragged me out of the town and and left me for dead. And, And Silas, come over here, that's where the first convert came to faith in Christ. Amazing. So now they've come to Lystra and that's when second they met with Timothy, Now, what do we know about Timothy? From 2 Timothy, we know that his mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were Jewish women who had become true believers in Christ. And although Timothy's father was an unbelieving Greek, these women had taught Timothy the Old Testament Scriptures from his childhood. And so when Paul came and preached Christ as Lord and Savior, Timothy already had the good foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures, which reveals God and His truth to us. And so it seems that he... And his mom and his grandma all became Christians at the same time. And as Paul again makes his way through Lystra, Timothy is probably now in his late teens or early 20s. And just as witnessing the stoning of Stephen had made a lasting impression on Paul, so watching Paul get stoned in Lystra had undoubtedly made a profound impression on young Timothy. <coughs> the lesson he would have learned? Jesus Christ is worth it. Following Christ at any cost is Worth it. Jesus truly is life's greatest treasure, and nothing compares to him. That's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. Look what Luke the writer says about Timothy. First, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, verse 2. What a compliment is that. The church speaks well of Timothy. He has a good reputation. They think he's a young man of character, growing godliness, and integrity. Again, what a compliment. The word for well-spoken refers to a human declaration of firsthand facts that are based on personal knowledge. So as Timothy lived his life amongst the people of God and as they observed him, they brought back a good testimony, a good report regarding Timothy. The tense of this word depicts this happening over and over and over and over again from numerous people regarding Timothy. But you know... Sometimes people get this wrong. Sometimes they get it wrong. It's true. Sometimes we can fool people, right? And we can make them think that we're way better than we really are. Was that the case with Timothy? What do you think? I mean, that that while others looked at him and saw a growing man of God, that God looked at him and saw something totally different. What do you think? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Time reveals much, and time would prove the true character of Timothy. And so, about 10 years later, Paul writes these words to the Philippian Christians. Verses 19 through 23 of Philippians chapter 2. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Listen to this. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. It's revealing, isn't it? First Paul says, again, this is about ten years later, I have no one like-minded the way Timothy is like-minded. and That says a lot. Like-minded, other translations say, of kindred spirit. Literally, this word means one-souled, which speaks of having the same motive, the same heart, the same feelings when it comes to God, to ministry, and to the church. It's it's good to be like-minded with a man of God like Paul. says a lot. Second, Timothy had a sincere care for souls, Paul says. Sincere speaks of that which is genuine, that which is true. Care speaks of having a strong feeling for something, or for someone, often to the point of being burdened. And here we see that Timothy had a heartfelt care and love for the condition of the people of God, specifically the Philippian Christians. It wasn't fake, see. It wasn't just external. It wasn't just a job forcing him to act like he cared. No, no, no. It was real, and it burdened him, and he had a truly unselfish care for the spiritual condition of these Christians. When they hurt, he hurt. When they wept, he wept. When they were struggling, he struggled with them. When they were in sin, he prayed for them, and he felt the burden, he felt the heartache. It was real, see. And you know, that's the kind of pastor you want. That's the only kind of pastor you want. That was Timothy. In 1936, Josiah Holland wrote the poem, God Give Us Men. He said these words. A time like this demands... Strong minds, great hearts, true faith, and ready hands. Men whom the lust of office does not kill. Men whom the spoils of office cannot buy. Men who possess opinions and a will. Men who have honor. Men who will not lie. Men who can stand before a demagogue and damn his treacherous flatteries without winking. Tall men, sun-crowned, who live above the fog in public duty and in private thinking." Again, Timothy was a man like that. He was such a man. And the church needs more men like this, sincere men, godly men, real men, strong men like Timothy. Third, Timothy was a seeker of the things of Christ. Verse 21, uh, Philippians 2. All seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, except for Timothy. Except for Timothy. He doesn't seek his own. No, he said, I won't seek my own, my own wants, my own desires, my own plans, my own wealth, my own well-being, my own pride. No, no, no. I will seek God. That's very rare. May it not be rare here. Think about that. All seek their own. All? That's what he says. Here Paul is saying that as great as a need is for someone to minister to the Philippian church, no one really seems to care. Where are all those whom Paul has led to the Lord and schooled in truth in order that they might minister? They're all gone. Where are those who walked with Paul and trained to carry on Paul's ministry? Where are they? They're not here. See, they're selfish. They're too busy to go. They're too occupied with their business to care, too selfish to endure everything that was going on. And their selfishness, their preoccupation with their own things, their preoccupation with the things of this life caused them to forego the privilege to minister to the saints of God that the apostles set before them. It's heartbreaking. Here are saints to be taught and no one cares. Here are wounded hearts to be bound up, no one cares. Here are men to be reached for Christ, no one cares. Here are children to be taught and trained and guided in the things of God and no one cares. But there is one, Timothy. Timothy, he cares. I love that. Timothy doesn't seek his own. He seeks God. What about you? Lord, help us to be more like Timothy who said, all for Christ, less of me and more of him. Why? Because he is worthy, because I love him. Because only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last because everything else is a waste of life. Timothy got it. He clearly got it. Fourth, Timothy had proven character, Philippians 2.22. See, Paul knew that he could trust Timothy. The word for proven refers to that which has been tested and approved. And when used of a person, it refers to proven character and tested value. See, Timothy had been tested many times through the great trials and sufferings that he had to endure. And he had proven himself faithful. These past ten years, by the time Paul's writing this in Philippians... The pressures had come to Timothy, and he, in the power of the Lord, had endured those pressures. How did he prove himself? Well, by sticking with Paul through thick and thin. By volunteering to tackle the hard jobs for the glory of God. By refusing to cut and run under the fire. No, he stayed, and he was faithful. By doing the menial tasks, the dirty work, so that Paul was freed up to do what he did best. He he could be trusted. Timothy could be relied on, and he was the kind of man that you wanted to go into spiritual battle with because he knew that he would stand strong and so Timothy he was a real deal and even as a young man here in Acts the people could tell I love that hey please don't limit what God can do and please don't limit who God can use and teens don't put off pleasing God when God can use you right here right now no stand strong be bold. Honor God where he has you and who knows how God will use you. Today. Right now. But putting God off for another day is never the answer. No. You have today. So redeem today for the glory of God whatever your age. Paul is obviously very impressed with young Timothy and as we see in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to go with he and Silas on the rest of their missionary trip. That's, that's amazing. Think about that. Can you imagine being Timothy and hearing Paul say that for the first time? You want me to go with you? <laughs> and these is, this isn't just hopeful wishes for Paul, no, but this is a determined and constant exercise of Paul's will, for he firmly desires for Timothy to come and join him. And just as strongly as Paul didn't want Mark to join them on this trip, Paul just as strongly desired Timothy to join them. What would Timothy do? Probably what Mark was supposed to do on that first missionary trip, to assist the missionaries, chapter 13, verse 5. What would that have entailed? It doesn't say, but the word indicates that he would have basically done whatever he could to help the missionaries focus on the task at hand. Uh, working out details, feeding them perhaps, helping them with their luggage, whatever. And oh, what a privilege it would have been. I mean, these are some great men of God. And not only is Timothy going to be able to help them and and their ministry, but he's also going to be able to observe them and learn from them, which would have been invaluable to him. And note this, Timothy would have no delusions of grandeur about this. I mean, he knew. He knew. He knew that pain and trial would most certainly lay ahead for him. He knew the cost because he had seen it firsthand the first time Paul came to his town, and he knew that he could and would probably die on this trip but even so Timothy counted the cost of partnering with Paul and he was more than willing to go for Christ and his people Lord help us to be more like that young man Jesus is indeed worth it Lord help us to live like we truly believe it so now Timothy's going to join Paul and Silas but before that happens Paul had something done that's shocking at first glance what's that this Paul had Timothy circumcised. What? How how in the world could Paul do this? I mean, didn't the church just battle against saying that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved? Yes, they did. Remember? The Jews were all about circumcision as the right that incorporated you into the people of God, and it was a massive deal to them. And when some false teachers came in and taught that you needed to be circumcised first in order to be saved, in order to become a true Christian, the church fought that. They denied that, making it clear that works have nothing whatsoever to do with salvation. So, why have Timothy circumcised? Here's why. Because what Paul had Timothy do had nothing to do with salvation. It's interesting that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul speaks of an earlier visit to Jerusalem that he and Barnabas made when they took a Gentile with them, Titus. Well, some people wanted to circumcise Titus and Paul refused to do that. He said he wouldn't give in to them for a moment and he was adamantly opposed to circumcising Titus. And yet here, he circumcised Timothy without hesitation. So, is Paul wavering? Is Paul being wishy-washy? Is Paul being inconsistent? What do you think? Not in any way. In fact, Paul is being perfectly consistent here. For when the essence of the gospel was at stake, Paul vehemently opposed circumcision. But when the progress of the gospel was at stake. Paul practiced circumcision. And here with Timothy, unlike with Titus, and unlike with what the Jerusalem council had previously dealt with, the issue here isn't in any way the essence of the gospel, but with its progress. Luke the writer explains it for us when he tells us that Paul had Timothy circumcised because of the Jews who were in those parts. See, these were people who knew Timothy and these were people who knew Timothy's father. Therefore, they knew the situation that his father was a pagan, that Timothy was an uncircumcised (coughs) young man, and that would have been an incredible obstacle to Timothy entering into the synagogue as was Paul's practice and giving the gospel to the Jewish people in this area. And so to prevent that great hindrance from happening, Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. Not for salvation, no, 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 not in any way. This has nothing to do with salvation. And not for any personal spiritual advantage for Timothy, no. But in order to keep a door of evangelism from being closed. See, both Paul and Timothy knew that circumcision was nothing. But if it could help you minister to people, then why not get circumcised? Man, I'm glad this isn't an issue today. (laughs) This whole thing shows the greatness of Paul's heart. How he was absolutely unyielding when it came to the truth of the gospel. But look, he would adjust to the customs of those he was with in order to benefit evangelism. Never compromising the truth, not ever, but always seeking to be used to save the lost. As he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I've become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. Picture this hypothetical situation. I'm out sharing Christ with the lost in a foreign country and I come across the village where everyone has a shaved head. And they won't let you into the village without a shaved head. So what should I do? I mean, I know I have an incredible head of hair. What do I do? I shave my head so that I can better minister to these lost souls. <laughs> and that's essentially what was going on here in Acts 16. Again, and this is important to understand, this had nothing to do with salvation. This was a different issue than what they dealt with with the Jerusalem council. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with the gospel, not here. It was in no way a compromise of God and his truth. No, but look, having Timothy circumcised again would allow Timothy to openly be able to minister to the Jews in this area when he wouldn't have been able to do so otherwise. See, that's the issue. It shows their heart for the lost around them. Again, they would never compromise the truth, but they would do what they can do, to remove stumbling blocks for the lost so that they can go to them and give God's truth to them. I love that. I love that. Oh, that we would have the same heart for the lost souls around us. I mean, look, souls all around us are dying in their sin. And here we are with the good news that can save them. We're called to be Light in the darkness. We're called to be (coughs) salt in this decaying world. We're to be the spiritual watchmen for the souls all around us. We're called to be Christ's ambassadors. How are you doing with that? For surely it's an intolerable disgrace to anyone to profess to be a Christian and have no concern about the souls of others while they are perishing by the millions. Hey, there are over 7.5 billion people in the world. About 153,000 die in the world every day. Most of these people don't know the Lord. Most of these people are dying in their sin and they're going to hell. People all around us don't know the truth that can save their soul. People here in Vacaville are hopeless, lost, and wandering about without, like, like sheep without a shepherd. The coron- uh, coronavirus is nothing. What are they going to do when they stand before God? People in Myanmar, and Africa, all around us are desperate for Jesus, and while we can't save them, we can certainly tell them and show them and pray for them and support missionaries and care. Lord, help us to care. We aren't stones. We have to weep for the lost souls around us. We have to care. How could we not care? It was this concern for the lost, it was this passion for souls that drove Paul and Timothy to do what they did, and it wasn't easy. I mean, this wasn't convenient. How do you think Timothy felt about this? But it was worth it. Souls. Souls. More souls for the glory of God. Lord, help us to care for the lost around us like that. And Lord, help us to do something about it because the time is short. What then? Third, they went through the cities and strengthened the churches. Of course they did. Verses 4 and 5. And they went... As they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. You see what they're doing? As they go from city to city, they're sharing the truth of God with them. They're also sharing the results of the Jerusalem council with these churches. We're saved by faith alone, not by any work. Amen to that. And they're strengthening the church, which is the Word, uh, what the Word of God does. And look, they're seeing souls saved daily. What a ministry. What a ministry. See, Paul and Silas and Timothy got it, for they're focused on Christ's glory. And they're giving the church what it needs the most, the truth of God. And I'm convinced these churches got it as well. I mean, they're, these were trying times for these churches. Persecution of God's people was a reality, a a growing reality for these churches. But look, they're strong, they're intent, they're growing. Souls are getting saved, I love that. Makes me think of the early church in Acts 4, remember that? They were of one heart and soul. They had all things in common. Great grace was upon them and no one lacked anything because they weren't sidetracked by all the junk that so often sidetracks us, and oh, oh, how I long for more of that here at Faith Community Church, even though we can't meet together corporately for the time. Quickly, look at the church in Acts 4 that reminds me of the churches that Paul and Timothy are now ministering to. They had all things in common. Why? Because they had Christ in common. And he makes all other things very small when compared to him. John, you asked, does that mean that they all like the same football team? and they all have the same hobbies, they all wear the same clothes. Is that what that means? Absolutely not. Uh, John, does that mean that they lived in some kind of commune like in the 60s, and, and should we do that today in order to be like them? I sure hope not. It means this, that as the family of God, if you have a need and I can meet that need, then here you go. If you have a need and I have supply, here's my supply for your need. Verse 32 says this, of Acts chapter 4. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. No, this doesn't say or mean that they threw everything into a pot and gave it out equally. It doesn't say that. They simply did what they could to help meet the needs of their brethren around them out of agape Christian love. See, this doesn't teach that the believers had no personal property of their own. It simply shows us that the believers with property were willing to sell some of what they had if some of the poorer brethren had true needs. Note that this happened naturally. And this shows us their spontaneous and true commitment that they had to one another because of Christ. See, these people lived in the conviction of the supremacy of the spiritual over the material. The life of the Spirit in them made the question of property a secondary issue. As one said, these people were so mastered by the spiritual power that possessed them, so driven in this fresh and fragrant dawn of the church's life, by the reality of the eternal and the spiritual, that they held with light hands the things of the world. All material property was subservient to spiritual purpose, and so they said that nothing they had was their own. And again, this wasn't done under compulsion. It wasn't done under pressure. No, this was voluntary. It it sprang up out of them. It, It flowed out of them because of Christ in them. They saw a need. They did what they could to meet that need for the glory of God. That applies, doesn't it? I mean, if there's real needs in the church, and some in the church have an abundance, how could we not help one another with those real needs if we love one another, if we're truly the family of God? application, see a need, meet a need for the glory of God. I pray we show that kind of spirit more than ever in these very unique times. For truly, it's not about the fading goods of this life that matters, it's about the eternal things of the next life that matter, and we're the family of God, and your need is my need. See, what else? Well, this, great grace was upon them. Literally, mega grace. Oh, for that, here. Now, grace is not only unmerited grace, favor from God, but transforming power provided by the Father in heaven through His Son and dispensed in abundance by His Spirit. And all that was upon them all would suggest that mega grace wasn't just on the apostles, but on all the followers of Christ. I mean, it was just overflowing over these Christians we're saved by God's amazing grace we're kept and sustained by God's amazing grace and these Christians were basking in God's mega grace and favor i love that oh for that here please lord here what practically then does this mean this that great grace was upon them it can mean two things in acts 2 It says that the early church had favor with all the people, and while the spiritual leaders hated them, the people around them couldn't help but stand amazed at them and at their God. So it could mean that great grace is talking about them having favor with the people which they had. Some of them. (laughs) But second, and this is clear, they also had the favor of God, the mega grace of God on them. See, God was abundantly blessing them. They were richly blessed, so much so that God was pouring out sweet favor upon the church that was clearly recognized. God, this is it, God is at work in that place and through those people. You can see it. You can't miss it. God is certainly blessing them. And they're still suffering. They're struggling. But God is working through them mightily. And while God's grace in your life is an amazing thing, hey, great grace is better So how does this come about? It comes about when the church is united in their focus on Christ and when their intent is on sharing Him with the lost around them. John MacArthur says God only pours out His sweet favor on a church that has two characteristics, loving unity and evangelistic zeal. A church apart from those two things exists with limited favor from God. Great grace is reserved for the church that is one and the church that is out after the world For Jesus Christ. I agree. And that makes sense. Bring it here, Lord. I pray. Bring it here. We owe all to God's grace. For without His saving grace, none of us would be saved. And without daily grace, none of us would endure. But look, God pours out mega grace on those who are earnestly doing what He calls us to do. (laughs) Looking away from ourselves and lifting Him high <clears throat> which results in a church that's intently united together, gazing upon him, and then in a church that is passionate on getting his good news out that saves to the lost around us. Result, great grace, favor from God, his smile from heaven, extra boldness to do his great work in this world. Uh, Lord, help us. What else? Huh. No one lacked. See, love flowed. They knew it wasn't about them and the things of this world. Needs were being met along with spiritual needs, physical needs as well. The church at that time had great needs and the testimony that there wasn't anyone who lacked among them must have proven to be very powerful. Think about this. Nothing destroys evangelism more than the mediocrity and hypocrisy of the messenger. The world's tangible knowledge of Jesus is what it sees in the lives of Christians And if what it sees is a church that's more concerned for self-exaltation and self-promotion than the mutual love and support of God and of one another, then why should the world listen? If the world sees Christians talking and not doing, hating, not taking care of their own, bickering and fighting, why should they listen to us? If we really don't practice what we preach? No, but instead, what the people witnessed in Jerusalem in Acts 4 was a community that loved each other and others with agape Christian love and that truly cared for the needy in their midst. See, they tangibly expressed Christ's love by making sure that no one lacked any true need. There were no have-nots in the church because they put their love into action. The word need means to be deficient in, but to be lacking, to be in want, to be destitute, and to be poor. Well, the church made sure that the needs of everyone in their community was being met. Isn't that the way it should be? Isn't that the way it should be? It's the way it was in Acts 4, and I'm convinced that it's the way it was here in Acts 16 with these Galatian Christians. And shouldn't it be this way here amongst us, faith community church? Well, let me just say that we are committed to this, and especially in these interesting times, we are committed to this, And while we are intently committed to giving all the spiritual food that you need to you, we're also committed to tangibly showing you the agape love of Christ in practical ways. But you have to let us know if you have a real need. You have to let us know. Please, let us know. My picture is this. That faith community church isn't church as usual. Instead, that we look like an Acts 2 church, the, the Acts 4 church, that Acts 16 church. Loving, united, meeting needs, sharing, serving, helping, caring. Shining his light brightly to those around us and truly showing those around us and amongst us what a God-honoring, Christ-centered, evangelistic, united church looks like. Lord help us. It's a great opportunity for us. It's a great opportunity to shine Christ's light to the lost and needing souls, needy souls around us to show the community and the world what a church that's focused on Christ and His glory truly looks like more and more and more. God's Spirit will guide us in this as He works out of us to others. So more, Lord, this we pray. Move amongst us, Lord. Do something great through us. And may Your great grace be clearly evident amongst us for Your glory. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I thank You for these churches that are an example to us. I thank You for Paul and Silas and Timothy and the example they are and the churches they ministered to. And I pray, Lord, that You would bless Faith Community Church in these very interesting times, Lord. I pray that even though we can't meet together corporately, that we are indeed united, intent, focused, and earnestly desiring... To lift you high in our lives and in this community. So, Lord, I pray, move, work mightily, um, draw us near to you, help us to be a no compromise church. And I pray that you would use us mightily for your glory during these times to show this community and this world what, what you are truly like and what the church ought to be like. Lord, Use us, purify us, refine us. And I pray that we are indeed well-pleasing in Your sight. Speak to our hearts, encourage us in these things for Your glory as we encourage one another. We love You. We thank You. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.